Good evening. So a few years ago, Netflix had a tweet, and the tweet was, sleep is my greatest enemy. And at the uh, shareholders meeting with the CEO of Netflix, they were talking and trying to figure out, like, what is their greatest competition? And the CEO was like, look, our greatest competition is not Amazon streaming service. It's not Hulu streaming service. It's not HBO. It's sleep, which prompted that tweet. They want you to be all encompassed with their product, just like any store wants you to. But here's the thing. We have corporations that want us to focus on whatever they want us to focus on. Now, if you think about it, and, and it goes back before my time, which is a few years, uh, you know, television at one time kind of had to bring the family together sort of feel. Because you just had, like, one TV, and it was, like, pretty small, and it was black and white, and the whole family would gather around to watch whatever show it was because if you missed that episode, like, you, you wouldn't see it again. Like, it was gone. You might get to read the TV guide, you know, recap the next day or talk to one of your buddies, but, I mean, that was it. So you kind of gathered around for whatever the, the three shows were that, you know, actually were on TV. But now there's, a, like, a TV in every room, and a, and a TV this size, if, it, if there was one, and there is, I mean, to some people, that's small. They're like, yeah, that's my small TV, and my bigger one's in my, in my basement, in my surround sound theater. So there's a TV in every room. Everyone has their own device. You know, the wife can watch, uh, you know, HGTV. The husband can watch his, you know, action military show. And the kids can watch Disney. I mean, this is what, you realize this is what, we're trained to do. This is the training that we receive, that you can go your own way, have it your own way, focus on you, be by yourself, be the individual you're meant to be. One, if, if we've bought into that or been sliding towards that, like we need to rebuke that. Because there's no biblical truth in that. And while it might seem a little, a little funny that sleep is my greatest enemy, even something like that is actually not true. Because whenever we talk about, and I kind of want to just preface, this is kind of my introduction, I want to preface everything, like with whatever information comes our way, we always need to hold it up to what the Word of God says. So we receive uh, what appears to be truth, and we have to run it through the filter of God's Word to see if it really is truth. So just a couple verses that talk about sleep, just as an example. Look at Psalm 127. It starts in verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. By the way, this was my life verse in college, okay? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So it's a gift from the Lord. Now, now, can that gift be abused? Yeah, there's actually other verses that warn, not that sleep is bad, but there's dangers, what? To oversleeping, right? Well, it can lead to laziness, or it actually can be a sign of laziness. Look at Proverbs 3. He starts out in verse 21. My son, 
Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. What's the focus there? Like, the sleep comes from God. We take comfort in Him. We can close our eyes at night knowing that He's got us. I mean, think about that. So sleep reminds us that we're mortal. Sleep reminds us we need rest. Sleep reminds us to trust God, that He'll take care of tomorrow, and He's got all things. So again, when it comes to any issue, even something like sleep, we want to reorient reorient ourselves to God's Word and His truth. You know, our theme for the conference is unity in community. So where do we look for truth on this concept? The Word. And tonight, I want to set the groundwork for where our unity comes from and what we can learn from that. First, we see the three members of the Trinity working together. It's a sign of their unity. This is under the section, the first section of in our relationships. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, sometimes if you're not careful, you just start reading the verse and then you just kind of lose exactly what's in that verse. And we can, we can do that if we're not paying careful attention when we read the word. But I want you to notice something in these two verses. Notice how each member of the Trinity is at least referenced or made reference to. Look first, verse 4. Because, or excuse me, verse 4. For we know brothers loved by God. There's the first mention. And, and when God is mentioned in the New Testament, when that word, theos, in the Greek, normally refers to the Father... So you have the Father there. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel, well, what does that call to mind? What Jesus did, right? His finished work on the cross. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So we see the three members of the Trinity working together. Notice here, God the Father has chosen us in love. The mention of the gospel calls to mind the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's the Spirit who attends the preaching of the gospel. How does he attend to it? With power and with full conviction. So we see this intermutuality between the three. And, and here's the thing. It's not that they're just like mentioned in the same verses. No. Over and over again, you see them working together. We could, we could go through some different verses. We'll, we'll just look at a couple. But listen, God has undertaken the work of our salvation in a way that reflects his tri-unity. We see a similar pattern in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God, so that's the Father, for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Whenever you see that word Lord in the New Testament, references to Jesus, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So again, we see the Father has chosen us. The Son has loved us. And what's the Spirit doing? It's sanctify- he is sanctifying us. So in both passages, we see this. The Father is the one who has planned our 
salvation. He's planned it. The Son is the one who has accomplished our salvation. Did you accomplish your salvation? No. Jesus has accomplished it. And then the Spirit is the one who applies our salvation. So this, this tri-unity of the one God it appears, appears in the way that we see the word attribute aspects of our salvation preeminently to one or the other person of the Godhead. In other words, it's not just the Father saving us. We talk about, oh man, God saved me, like he was so gracious, you know, the Father redeemed me. That's true. But we also talk about, like, Jesus saved me. He redeemed me. He, like, you know, covered me in his blood. And then we talk about the Spirit, like the Spirit. He came in to me and regenerated me. So it's not just the Father saving us. And it's not just the Son saving us. And it's not just the Spirit saving us. Listen, if you take any one of them away, you don't have salvation. Think about it. Take away the Father. Who's going to send the Son? Take away the Son. Who's dying on the cross? Take away the Spirit. Who's going to fill you and regenerate you? Like, there is an intermutuality. They're working together in unity to accomplish your salvation. All three are integral to salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Okay, there's the first reference to one member of the Trinity. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. There's a second reference to a different member of the Trinity. Through his power, through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ, third reference to the third member, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, we see the Trinity works together in unity to accomplish these things for you. Friends, just like the Trinity works together, we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, need to work together in unity. The Trinity is the foundation for our unity. Why? Because, the, in part, the Trinity works together. They show the example for us. Therefore, we work together in unity. Now, think about the word Trinity itself. This is under my second point, in respect to God and others. The very word itself implies unity. Try three, unity. Okay, three in one. And when we say the word Trinity, listen, we're making a theological statement about God, that yes, he's three in one, but we're also making a theological statement about what type of God this is. A God that has unity within himself. A three-in-oneness. Think about that for a moment. The three-in-one. That is our God. And the concept of the unity of God is greatly stressed in the Old Testament. Over and over again, what's, what's that cry? Like, the Lord our God is one. He is one God. There's only one God. That's what you see stressed in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
Verse 4, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, every day this was recited by ancient Israel. It's actually referred to as the great Shema. Shema is just the Hebrew word for word. It's the great word. What is the great word? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Notice in this verse, how many times is God mentioned? Three times. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Three times it's mentioned, one God. And here's the thing, friends. God has a design for each one of us. He has a design for us. Uh, a, few, a few years ago, an airline's uh, tweeted out a picture of uh, various seatbelts in their configuration. You can see it there. And you can see what they tweeted. It doesn't matter who you click with. Happy Pride Amsterdam. Now, the tweet quickly got slammed from all sorts of people because it's pretty self-evident that the two of those sets of seatbelts don't actually work as seatbelts. And they got trolled pretty badly. Uh, one, one person, and I'm just paraphrasing, was like, if I get on your plane and have options as to which belt I get to choose, it's pretty obvious which one I'm choosing. And another person said, if there's a chance I might get, might get on your flight and get any of the three options when I fly with you, I'm no longer flying with you. God has a design, okay? And we can, we can try to reorient that design. We can try to switch that design. We can try to kick against that design. But God has a design. He has a design for us. Why? Because we are uniquely designed by God. God has a design for us. What is it? Well, first and foremost, it starts with the image of God. The design is based not on his creation, but on God himself. Think about that for a minute. When he made us, he wasn't like, oh, I like how I made the sea. I like how I made the mountains. I like how I made these little animals over here. Like, that, oh, that gives me a great idea. No, the design is based on him. His image, his likeness. We are designed to image him. Genesis 1.26, just listen to it. You don't need to turn there. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. But then James picks up on this. Turn to James chapter 3. I want you to see it. And he references back to Genesis 1. He starts in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. Excuse me, who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. That word that he uses there is the same word used in Genesis 1.26 in the Greek Old Testament. Think about salt water for a minute. He compares it to fresh water. Salt water, not the image of God. And our actions can show whether we are imaging God or whether we're not imaging God. Whether we're acting like Him or whether we're not. We want to image God. And, and, and there's different aspects to this. One is being like Him in regards to His character. But here, we, we just have like two options, like salt water or fresh water. Like you're going to be one or the other and used to your verbal language. Thistle or fig tree. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I got to choose water, I'm choosing the fresh water. I don't know about you. You ever just dive into the ocean and just start drinking away? It's pretty nasty. Thistle or fig tree. I mean, if I'm hungry, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not munching on the thistles. I'm choosing the fig tree. What are you choosing? Dandelion yard or luscious lawn? <laughs> I want the luscious lawn. Y'all know me. But we're designed with a purpose. And we are designed with intentionality. And we are designed with uniqueness. I mean, think about it. God wasn't just like, oh, we've done a good job so far. And uh, like, uh, let's just create something and, and, and let it talk. You know? No, there was intentionality to his creation of us. Um, it wouldn't be proper to say it, but there was great forethought, okay? But he wasn't really forethinking. But the point is, it wasn't just like he went about it willy-nilly. We are the image of God. We are to be like him. How? In who he is and in what he is. Because here's the thing. God's attributes attest to his unity. All right? God's attributes attest to his unity. We're going to show a couple slides here. The first two are are wrong ways to look at God regarding his attributes. Sometimes when we think about God, we think about his attributes and we think, oh, part of him is love, part of him is grace, part of him is wrath. That's not accurate. He's, He's not made up of these little parts. The second slide shows how, oh, maybe it's it's God and then these attributes are like kind of like added to him. You know, they're kind of outside him. They're not really part of him. That's inaccurate as well. When he is all loving, that's going to go through every single aspect of who he is. And then with that, you might have mercy. And that's going to start intersecting with the love. Why? Because he is infinitely loving and infinitely merciful and infinitely just and infinitely wrathful. All those things he is at once. And those attributes really are a description of God himself. They are unified together. It is hard for us to wrap our mind around that. But if he is all loving and all merciful and all gracious, and he is infinite in each of his attributes, all powerful, all knowing, all wrathful, he is those things. 
at every moment, at every time. He is unified in his inner being. To say it a different way, he's not more loving and less wrathful. He's not more powerful and less kind. He's not more knowing and less patient. No, he is all of these things all at once, all the time. And in that, he is one and he is unified in his oneness. He is one and he is unified in his attributes. The second thing for us to do then as we image God, is what? To be like him. And when we're commanded to be like him, how are we supposed to be like him? Be what? Holy. That's like the umbrella over all of it. I mean, if you're holy, then you will be loving, gracious, merciful. I mean, you will walk out the fruits of the Spirit in that holiness. Listen. There's only one being. Only one being can be fully in control and at the top. Only one. And our unity comes from him. Look at Psalm 133. I want to continue to emphasize how our unity comes from God. This is important for you to see. Psalm 133, a song of a sense of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, it's kind of an interesting picture we get because he's, he's saying, oh, man, how pleasant and sweet it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let me give you this picture. It's like this oil going down on Aaron's head, like, I'm struggling with that one, David. Like, help me out a little bit. But, he, but David is, is imaging in his mind here, he's drawing this picture for us of the anointing of the high priest. So in Exodus 29, it says, You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. But look back at, at Psalm 133. There's a couple key words here that help us out. It says, in verse 2, it's, it's running down on the, you know, he pours it on, the, the, on his head, and then it's running down onto the beard. And then at the end of verse 2, running down under the collar of his robes. Then even the dew of Hermon, well, it falls on the mountains. Well, where's it coming from? It's not coming from Aaron, right? No, it's coming from, from, from something outside of Aaron, or in this case, someone outside of Aaron. What is the source of this unity. That's what David is trying to draw out with this metaphor. The source of the unity is, is above and beyond the priesthood. It's above and beyond it. It is extrinsic to the priesthood, outside of it. So in the same way that oil was poured onto Aaron by someone else, Moses, in the same way that it was poured onto Aaron, unity was poured onto the people of God. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Where's that unity coming? I mean, it's like God. He's pouring out that oil on us to dwell in unity. And it's just, it's running down. It's running down. And the dew of Hermon, it's, it's falling down on the mountains of Zion. Where's that coming from? The mountains just don't create the dew themselves. Aaron doesn't just create the oil himself. No, it comes from God. He is the one that is doing the anointing. 
And think about, if you want to draw the imagery a little bit further, the oil, as Aaron represented the people, what would he be wearing right here? He'd be wearing that breastplate, right? And, and there were stones on that breastplate, right? One for what? Each tribe, right? So that oil is going down. It's going on to his robe. It's going on to the breastplate. It's covering the stones. You can fill out the imagery a little bit. Unity was God's gift to his people given through the mediation of the high priest. It was an objective reality they needed to understand and act and foster. That's what David is driving at. Even Jesus himself talks about the importance of unity among brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at John 17. Now, when you think about prayers of Jesus, if we started to name some of them, uh, most of them are pretty short that we have recorded in the New Testament. We have the Lord's Prayer. That's probably the longest one besides John 17. Then you have the prayer in the garden, right? You got the prayer at Lazarus' tomb, a couple more. Uh, but this is the longest. And here's the thing. It's specifically for us believers. We're going to walk through it and pause at some places, but we're actually going to read uh, most of it because I want you to see the context and then understand how the uh, process uh, develops and we can see the thinking that's going on here. So it goes in verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Okay, that's us, right? I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I mean, he's having a conversation with his father. We're getting at least the one side of it, but he's talking to God. He hasn't made a single request to this point. He hasn't. Let's go on. Verse 10, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, and here is his first request. Holy Father, keep them in your name. That's his first request for us. Keep them in your name. Guard them. Protect them. He goes on, keep them in your name, which you have given me. And, and why, Lord? Why keep them in your name? He gives us the answer, that they may be one. And who does he reference? Even as we are one. Our unity. We have it, Father. You, me, the Spirit. Let them have it. 
He goes on. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Here's his second request, and it's repeating the first request. Keep them. And this time, it's still for protection. Keep them from who? From the evil one. Keep them from the devil. Keep them from Satan. Protect them. Second request, just like the first. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now here's his third request. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, y'all. We're believing in the apostolic word. That they, here he goes, that they may all be one that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, did you catch that? One, Jesus wants our unity to be like his unity with the Father. That is not possible apart from from Jesus himself giving us that unity. It coming from above. But I also want you to note, back in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Think about that. Our unity, Jesus is saying that our unity is a testimony to the world, and it will be the depending factor whether they believe or not, whether the word believes it, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You want to make a great testimony to unbelievers? It's going to be the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why it breaks the heart of God when there is disunity in church. It is, it is an abomination. It grieves the Holy Spirit, and it ruins your testimony. So that the world may believe that I want people to believe that God sent Jesus. And he's telling us right here how to help make it happen through unity. So if, if you're not in unity with a brother or sister, that's hurting the testimony of Christ. That's the word speaking. I'm just the mouthpiece, but that's the truth. Jesus wants our unity to be like his unity with the Father. Why? Because he wants people to know him. He wants people to know him. And it's not just like a sort of unity or of a kind of unity or a pretty good unity. No, what does he say in verse 23? That they may be perfectly one. Perfectly one. We can't do that, but God can. We can't accomplish that 
but God can't. That's why when you see people, you can have people from all different backgrounds, tribes, nations, groups. They can come together and they can be unified in the name of Jesus. And that is a powerful testimony to who God himself is. Because everything out there, the world, even especially these days, is, is, is trying to create disunity and factions in this group and this group and this group and this group and this group. And when brothers and sisters from all different sorts of backgrounds can come together and be unified, it speaks to the power of God. It speaks to what God has done through his son in Jesus Christ. You want to be a testimony for the gospel, then make sure you're in right relationship with your brother or sister in Christ. Friends, we have a reputation. We have a reputation to keep. Not because we want people thinking all great about us, but because we want people thinking great about God. So let's talk finally about in our reputation. Have you ever gotten like a shout out from someone? You know, maybe they're speaking and they give you a little shout out or they thank you publicly. I remember, uh, it was, I think it was our first trip um, our church youth group went to uh, the Stand of Reason Apologetics Conference, and we drove to Dallas, Texas, and we, you know, like wrote, you know, on the van, like, you know, Dallas or bust, you know. And we were all pumped up and excited, and, and Greg Kokel, the, the leader of Stand of Reason, this apologetic ministry, you know, he got up on the stage, and he was like, there's people even here from St. Louis, you know, and we're all like, yeah, right? <clears throat> And even the next week, like, on his radio show, like, he gave us, like, a shout-out. He's like, these people from St. Louis, and they had, like, stuff written on their van, you know? And I was, like, riding in my car, and I'm like, that's me, that's me, you know? I'm like, yeah, give me that shout-out. Well, I got a shout-out another time, too. I was at a banquet with, like, a couple hundred people at it. And the speaker for the banquet, he was lamenting over the educational system in America. And just going on and on about just how poor our educational system was. And then he's like, and, and, and Mike Bond over here, you know, he has his master's degree. And, and he doesn't even know who, and he, you know, said this great historical figure. And I kind of like slumped in my chair. <laughs> because I was like the example of like how horrible our public education <laughs> system is, even with my master's degree. So I got a shout out. It wasn't a good shout out. I've noticed something about the New Testament, New Testament epistles. Like, if you get a shout-out from Paul in, in the middle of the epistles, you're doing pretty good. Or, sorry, sorry. At the end of the epistles, you're doing pretty good. If you get mentioned in the middle, you're on some shaky ground. Like, the end, he's always like, hey, tell this person, you know, keep up the good work, and tell this person I'm on my way, and tell this person, like, you're awesome, right? In the middle, uh, not so pretty. Look at Philippians chapter 4. So he's wrapping up his letter, Philippians 4. Paul says, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then just kind of like out of nowhere, look what he does. I entreat Euodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Like, ouch. I mean, they just got called out publicly in the Bible. Like, you can't live that one down. Like, Seriously. Like, imagine in heaven, you know, like, you die, and you're, like, meeting people, and, like, what's your name? You're like, oh, Euodia. Oh, you're like, oh, oh, Philippians, right? I mean, and they're like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they got called out. <clears throat> they got called out. But, but why were they getting called out? Because of the disunity that they were causing in the Philippian church. 
it was a big enough issue that Paul called them out in Holy Scripture. That's how big of an issue it was. They were disunified. And disunity ruins Christianity. It does great damage to the gospel. It does great damage to our witness. It does great damage to the church. Listen, we are called as brothers and sisters to work together in unity. Why? Because it reflects the very nature of God. We're called to image God, to be like Him. That's our calling. Be holy as I am holy. And we're, we're to protect this. Protect what God has given us. This unity. It just doesn't come all, all easy, willy. You gotta work at it. You have to work at it. You have to, you have to put your own self away sometimes. You have to <clears throat> consider others better than yourselves. You know, you've heard the, you know, the, the saying, strength in numbers. I mean, there's truth in that, depending on the situation. But friends, there is strength in unity. There is strength in unity. A unified church can withstand a thousand onslaughts of the enemy. A disunified church can fall with just one single arrow. So let's work together in unity. Let's strengthen our community and let's walk in unity in community. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the foundation for our unity, that our unity truly does come from you. You pour it down upon us. It is a distinguishing factor, a characteristic of your children. So let us act like your children. We want the world to know you. So let us walk in unity for your glory.